Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 198 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new Hulu miniseries 112263, based on the novel by Stephen King. The series stars James Franco as a high school English teacher who travels back in time to prevent the assassination of JFK. And this will involve spoilers for both the book and the show, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Matt London, making his 15th appearance on the show. He's the author of the eco-adventure novels The Eighth Continent, Welcome to the Jungle, and Born to be Wild. The fourth and final volume in the series, We Built This City, is out now. So Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dave. Then next up, we've got Chris Savasco making his fifth appearance on the show. From 2003 to 2009, he was the editor of Paradox, the magazine of historical and speculative fiction. His short fiction has appeared in or is upcoming in Nightmare Magazine, Black Static, and Space and Time, as well as in the anthologies Shades of Blue and Gray, Ghosts of the Civil War, and Zombies, Shambling Through the Ages. He's also written a psychological thriller about Lady Godiva and a wartime resistance thriller set immediately after the Norman Conquest, both of which he's currently shopping around to agents. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. And finally, we've got Jordan Hammersley London, who you may remember from our panel on horror publishing back in episode 58, and our panel on Star Wars The Force Awakens back in episode 183. She's an editorial director at Adaptive Books, and has also been an editor at Grossa and Dunlap and Egmont USA, where she worked with authors such as E.C. Myers, Adam Troy Castro, and Ben H. Winters. So, Jordan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, and so among our panel here, Matt and I have watched the show but have not read the book, and Chris and Jordan both read the book before watching the show, and Chris actually just read the book for the first time this past week. So, Chris, just overall, what did you think of the book? I really love the book, actually. I mean, it was uh, one of these books that's a huge doorstopper, you know, like... Um, but I, I, I think I flew through it in about a week because it just, you know, once I started, I kind of couldn't put it down. So I really, I really enjoyed it quite a bit. Right. I've heard a lot of people say they think this is one of Stephen King's best books. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. I, it's actually only the third book I've ever read by King. And the other two were books that I hadn't. I mean, the last time I read a Stephen King book was in the 1980s. Um, and they were two books that. Uh, I've been told by King fans were about the worst choices I could have made. Be- and maybe that's why I stopped reading them. I read, <laughs> I read the Tommyknockers and, uh, Eyes of the Dragon, which I, I, I mean, you know, not, not that they're, they were terrible, but they were a little underwhelming. And so, uh, it took all this time for me to pick up another one, but, uh, this one I loved. So what, what prompted you to pick it up now? Uh, I just, you know, I think, um, I'd been hearing a lot of people over the years, like telling me like, oh no, he's such a brilliant writer. I mean, you don't judge him just based on those two books. You really should read something. And so I've been meaning to, you know, give it another go, um, with one of his books. And this one, I just been hearing a lot of good, good things about. And, uh, it sounded, um, well, you know, actually I said, I was about to say it sounded interesting, but to be honest, other than the fact that based on the title and the cover, I knew it was going to have something to do with the JFK assassination. I actually went into this book having no other idea what it was going to be about. Like, I didn't know it involved time travel. I didn't know anything about it other than that it had something to do with JFK. Um, but uh, I was pleasantly surprised once I started reading and uh, really liked it. Hmm. How about Jordan? What did you think of the book? 
So I read the book as soon as it came out in 2011, I guess it came out. And I am a big King fan and tried at the time to read as much as I could as it was pubbing. And more recently, I haven't had a chance to read everything that's been recent. But I really enjoyed it. And I think it's a great example of King working in a more realistic world, but still managing to create very tense and horrific situations, even though on the face, it doesn't seem like a horror novel. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I think that the ending in the book gets a little weird and explainy as they try and define why everything has happened. And the TV show definitely doesn't delve into that nearly as much, uh, for the better. I think, I think that some of King's more recent books like this and Under the Dome, once he starts explaining the why of things, it gets messy. But I loved the the book on the whole, and especially the relationship between Jake and Sadie really worked for me on the in the book. Okay, cool. And so how about Matt? What were your expectations uh, going into this TV series? Well, I, I was expecting a J.J. Abrams show. Um, which was something that had mystery, intention, twists, um, and that I think all got paid off really nicely as I watched the sh- the series. Um, I knew sort of the setup of this of the story because I read a a chunk of the of the book. Um, but uh, you know, I felt like it uh, definitely met the expectations that I had. It's interesting that, that, you know, J.J. Abrams and Stephen King were both producers on this series. And just thinking about this, I, I feel like J.J. Abrams and Stephen King kind of have, for me, similar strengths and weaknesses, that I feel like both of them have stories that really grab your interest and draw you in. And they have really well-drawn, engaging characters. And just on a sentence-by-sentence or a frame-by-frame level, they work really, really well. And I feel like the weakness sometimes for both of them is that the more you think about it, the more it doesn't really hold together. Um, I felt like a little bit what was going on with that, with this, but I don't know. We can get into it, but I mean, I don't know. So Matt, what did you think when you started watching the show? Did it, did it grab your interest? Yeah, it absolutely did. Um, I remember being shocked, surprised, excited through the whole kind of two hour first episode. And, um, I was amazed at just, like, how startled I was by certain moments. Like, I'm somebody who has a background in film film and television. I study narrative structures. So I feel like I have a pretty strong understanding of the way that a story is supposed to go. And I find that often it's very difficult for me to be surprised. And that I frequently, I frequently find scenes very predictable. But time and again, um, I was completely shocked by some of the things that happened in this show. And I found that really delightful to kind of like dust some of the cobwebs off of my, you know, uh, audience brain um, and let me just kind of enjoy it on a visceral level. Right. And so, I mean, so Jordan, what did you think of the show as it got started? Did it, did it capture for you the, the Stephen King qualities that you like? Yeah, it, it definitely did. I think that, you know, in those first two episodes, it's a lot of you shouldn't be here. Going on, uh, the dialogue comes up. It's repeated multiple times. If you shouldn't be here, starting with the yellow card man, and then 
um, the the time that it happened that freaked both me and Matt out. I think Matt actually screamed. <laughs> was when the there was the car crash when Jake was calling his father, and the car drives into the phone booth, and then there's the woman on the ground who looks dead, and she turns her head very quickly and says, "You shouldn't be here," and then it cuts to commercial. Um, and I think that you know that definitely caught the 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 tension and tone that I was expecting from a King adaptation. And throughout the, the the series, there were more moments that, you know, were really strange and unsettling. And that's what I've come to expect from King more than anything is to be unsettled as opposed to horrified. Um, I think the majority of the relationship between Sadie and her husband was very unsettling. The entire sequence with Sadie, her husband, and Jake in Sadie's house was very you know, dark and disturbing and at times horrific, but it felt completely on tone with what I expected from this, the show and a King property. No, I totally agree with that scene where the car crashes into the telephone booth and then the woman on the ground says you shouldn't be here. I, I, that, that was really, really effective. That might have actually been my favorite moment in the series. Um, how come? Well, how come? Uh, because. Like you, like you said, like it, yeah. I think it made me jump, like you said. Yeah. And it, like a lot, like the like the thing that's good about J.J. Abrams and, and Stephen King is, like you say, like these kind of mysteries, and just the sense of the past as an adversary that can just do these horrible things to you, and also just the fact that, like, like these people saying you shouldn't be here, you know that there's going to be, or at least you feel that there's going to be some explanation for that, and you can't wait to find out. Why shouldn't I be here? What what exactly is going on? Right. There's something supernatural about it. Like I think that the 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 time travel mechanism is so mundane that you kind of expect it to be it, easy for him to keep his secrets. That he's alone in this new world, uh, or old world, as it as it. <laughs> and but then as these strange things start to happen, you you get a sense that there's either um, a lot more going on with this time travel mechanism than we as the audience or he as the character is led to believe. Um, and then there's also this sort of like final destination supernatural vibe to the, to the horror, to the thing that um, is threatening him. Um, and the way that that's slowly revealed and unraveled through these scenes of dread and scenes of surprise, um, I thought it was really effectively done and kind of raised the stakes of the show in a way that um, just if he was running from the CIA, it, I don't think it would have had quite that same feeling. Right. Well, you mentioned the time travel mechanism, which I thought was really interesting in this story, where basically every time he goes back into the past, he always goes through the exact same moment. And then every time he does it, it resets. You know, every time he returns to the present, he sees what happens as a result of that. And then if he goes back again, it resets everything in the present. And he goes back to that same exact moment. Um, I know, Chris, you're a big expert, right, on historical fiction and time travel kind of stuff, right? What did you think of that? that well, yeah, no, I, I thought that, that uh, I think it was interesting. And I think it provided... Um, well, I mean, I think it was used to better effect in the book because in the book, it, it, there's actually multiple trips that are made. Um, he's got several, um, sort of warm up trips, um, where he, 
you know, is trying to uh, determine, you know, what exactly, you know, ha- what sort of impact would he actually be able to have on the present by going out, you know, into the past. And he does a few smaller missions before the big mission in order to experiment with this and understand it better. And so, you know, it's, I, I thought it was a missed opportunity actually that they didn't explore some of that a little more in the mini series because it definitely was a huge part of the book. I mean, in the book, we, we don't even get to Dallas until more than halfway through this giant doorstop book. Um, because the whole first half of the book is in Maine and other places that he's going. Um, but, but yeah, I do think it's as a, as a mechanism and as a, 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 a means of time travel, it, it certainly was interesting. Um, I, just to quickly jump off of, I think I'm going to be sort of the, the, the contrary voice. Um, because I, it, thinking about that car hitting the, uh, the telephone booth. Um, yeah, I agree. That was startling and it was disturbing and it, and it was sort of a big, uh, you know, moment in the miniseries, but, I don't know. Unfortunately, I kind of felt like everything, there were a lot of changes made in the miniseries from the book and all of them basically amounted, uh, you know, to cars c- crashing into something, you know, <laughs> n- not, not that it actually was a car, but, but I mean, like all these changes just sort of seemed to come out of the blue. Whereas in the book, I felt like the obstacles and the sort of horror and the sort of unsettling things that he was dealing with all along the way kind of grew more organically. And so I didn't think that worked quite as well um, in, in, in the miniseries. I mean, I think it, it's a big part of just the discussion of adaptation in general. I think I really applaud the show for main, for being able to tell the story in eight episodes. And when you are trying to tell this story in a shorter period of time, removing the test the test runs does condense it and i think that you know something that matt and i frequently talked about as we were watching the show was well why doesn't he just go reboot right now Mm -hmm. um and i think that if we had seen him reboot it would have just been whenever he hits a snag he should just go back to maine i mean granted talus is very far away from maine um but removing that actually made it so that the plot could continue forward. I was expecting the reboots to happen because I'd read the book. And the one time I wish it had happened was after the entire sequence with Harry's family, solely so that Bill could not have existed. Um, <clears throat> I have a lot of issues with Bill. Yeah, um, I do And I think that, you know, Bill exists for the adaptation to be, you know, taking place of like the voiceover that you had in the book. Sure. But I think that Bill created all of these new and frustrating obstacles that for me, I was just like, why is this kid still here? And, you know, ultimately Bill's demise did affect me. I was very sad by the way, by what happened to Bill. But for the most part, I just kept going, when is Bill going to go away? Because he's driving me crazy. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, before we get too much into Bill, I want to say one other thing about the telephone booth, because I, I completely agree with you, Chris, that, well, I, it, like I said, it was my favorite moment, but I think that in the structure, it was a, extremely problematic because it was so dramatic and such a big thing to happen so early on. It made me wonder why more things like that didn't happen. You know, you would expect those mm-hmm. kinds of things to get bigger and more dramatic the closer he gets to the climax of the story. And right. instead, I kind of felt like they kind of, like blew the whole thing right there at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, that was one of the most dramatic things that did happen. And as far as I recall, it was simply because, and again, this is just some random 
subplot that the miniseries throws in, it's because he was trying to call his dad or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you know, on a lot of levels that bothers me because number one, it, it kind of makes, um, Jake Epping seem like a completely irresponsible time traveler. You know, it's like, you know, I, I understand, you know, you might want to do that, but I think in the book, it made it seem like he was willing to put aside any personal issues that he, you know, might have had or wanted to deal with in order to kind of just put himself into the mission. Whereas I thought throughout the miniseries, he came across as very unlikable um, because of a lot of these decisions that he makes that ends up causing the problems in a way that he then has to deal with. I mean, it, up to and including the fact that I feel like in the miniseries, it's basically directly his fault that he provokes the ex-husband to come and attack Sadie. Whereas in, in the book, he had nothing to do with that. It just happened in spite of his, you know, misgivings. But like, he never has that big confrontation where he basically, you know, has a throwdown with the guy. You know, I, I don't know. I feel like all of the choices that, that the James Franco version of Jake Epping made, made me dislike him more and more and more and more and think like, oh my gosh, like, I'm supposed to be rooting for this guy? You know, I don't know. Whereas in the book, I, I was totally rooting for Jake Epping throughout it because I thought he was really, you know, someone I should be rooting for. And I, and I just didn't get that in the miniseries. Huh. I mean, because I actually, like, I wonder how much more I liked it because I hadn't read the book and so I, I wasn't influenced in that way. Yeah, I'm sure that's, that that's, uh, if I had not read the book, I probably would have approached, you know, had a very different reaction to it. But um it's hard. And of course, it's hard for me to remove that and, you know, and imagine like, well, would I have felt the same way? But I don't know. I, I just felt like, you know, throughout it, he was like a bull in a china shop in, in the miniseries. And, you know, I, 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 it kind of made it difficult for me to feel bad for him when bad things happened to him because he kind of was the architect of all those bad things. Well, because like after the telephone booth, I was like, there's no possible way he's going to prevent this assassination. I mean, like crazy stuff's going to happen to stop it. And so then I actually really liked it when he goes and stops, um, was it Harry's, um, dad yeah. from doing the family? Cause then at least that's a proof of concept that, okay, he can actually save people. Um, I don't know, like, like Matt, as someone else who was coming to this a little bit more fresh, did you have sort of the, some of these problems that, um, Chris and Jordan are talking about? Um, I, I did sort of feel that the characters were kind of, like crashing into each other and making a lot of careless mistakes. But, you know, I'm sort of, I don't know, maybe I'm just being in a, I'm, I'm in a forgiving mood, but <laughs> I kind of feel like, um, a lot of the things that they did wrong can sort of be justified by human nature. And so, yeah, I mean, I can understand that if you're, you know, in the past and terrified and have no one to turn to that you might, you know, stupidly call your father or, um, you know, I think ignore the dangers of what you're doing and, and, and push onward, um, or provoke a total freak, you know, like I can understand that. Um, so no, I, I mean, I, I was rooting for him the whole time. Um, I was sort of suspicious of some of the other characters at various points. Like, you know, Bill made a lot of mistakes and those, I think <laughs> yeah. Bill's mistakes went a little bit further than Jake's did. Yeah. Um, and and so but but of course that was i think by design um whereas you know the frustrations with Jake's character maybe you know more of a perception thing i don't know maybe it was a um maybe it was something that has like that gets lost in translation from from book to film 
Um, so no, I didn't really have those issues. Um, you know, this is a pretty common trope now, um, a, a, a technique for adapting book to film or book to screen that you have this, you sort of add a character, um, that can sort of be the substitute for internal monologue so that those monologues or, you know, internal thoughts can be converted into dialogue scenes. Um, I've experienced that adaptation choice in the past and I've kind of been turned off by it. Maybe this was just the result of um, me not having read the original source material, but I actually really liked the character of Bill as a dramatic device. Um, And in fact, the show became so much about him um, I was shocked to find out that he hadn't been a part of the book because it just he just seemed so important um, and and pivotal to just the way that the plot unfolded. Yeah, I mean, Jordan, do you do you have a different idea for how you think they should have done it? No, I mean, I think that they they were smart to bring in a character like Bill. I think that my my frustration, I think, is that I I feel like I spent a good thirty percent of every episode holding my head, going, "Bill, what are you doing? Stop <laughs> yeah. doing that, Bill. Please don't go talk to her. Please don't do that." Um, and so you know, as a result, though, it did create additional tension. Like I think the majority of the tension I felt was Bill induced, and so you know, I I think it's just it was just frustrating that this new character did take up so much of my energy watching the show. Um, especially because, you know, one of my favorite characters in the book was Deke and he is a part of the, sh- of the show for sure. But I, I missed like more of that relationship, but Deke was never going to be someone who was going to be part of the, the journey of the, the mission. Um, but I, no, I don't have a fix. I just, and I, I don't, think that Bill was the wrong choice. I just think that Bill gave me a lot of stress. Yeah, I, I think they, they should have made him a little bit less incompetent. You know, like, like the, you get to a point where like, come on, man, just dump this guy, you know? Yeah. I, I think I think that should have ratcheted up. Because <laughs> yeah, I did love the moment where, uh, you know, he goes to his upstairs neighbors and, and Bill's partying with them. And, yeah. and he says, you know Bill? And the guy's like, oh, everybody knows Bill. Yeah. <laughs> Well, but you know, that, that gets back to another issue because it's, it's, you know, in the, they do talk about it in the miniseries too, but they made much more of a recurring, it was much more of a recurring theme in the book talking about, you know, the butterfly effect. And once you have someone like Bill Turcotte running around, you know, causing mayhem right, left and center, it's it sort of, you know, the butterfly effect times 10 because, it, you know, you have to wonder how in the world did you know, and I understand history is trying to keep itself on a line, but how in the world would Lee Harvey Oswald have even ended up in that book depository on that day and time after all the possible butterfly effect things that would have happened because of Bill? You know, in the book, um, Jake Epping does interact with people like Sadie and stuff, but it's always far removed from the, the actors in, in the, involved in the assassination. But once you start monkeying with that and Bill is like, fallen in love with with the the wife and is you know palling around with the guy i don't know it just seemed like it undermined the whole idea that like uh, you needed to even worry about that it's like well everything's gonna happen you know it doesn't matter what you do in the past i don't know i thought it sort of i don't know i i, I had an issue with it on, on that level too it, you know it, it almost makes you wonder like well how much of that apocalyptic future was because of the assassination and how much of it was because of bill <laughs> it's all <laughs> bill's fault yeah. that's great 
Stupid Bill. Um, okay, I just want... It's just speaking of characters doing things that kind of drive you crazy. I mean, there was a thing Jake did right at the beginning where he, he first goes through the the wormhole, whatever, and he runs into the yellow card man. And the yellow card man says, you shouldn't be here. And Jake's just kind of like, yeah, whatever. Like I, a rambling I, drunk guy on the street. I mean, like if I... L- listen... Just the other day, a like crazy drunk person on the street screamed <laughs> something at me. If I had taken yeah, but you didn't just walk through a time portal. <laughs> no, but like okay, so well, what if I did? It just it just like it just felt very like a setup to me where okay, I know this guy has something important to tell him, and he's just going to blow him off, and I know it's going to come back, and he's like, oh, I wish I had listened to that guy because you just know he has something. I mean, ter- that's true. If I, if I had been in Jake's situation in that moment and, and somebody had, you know, I just jumped through a time portal and then the first thing someone says to me is, you shouldn't be here. I would go, wait, me? You're talking <laughs> to me? What about me? Why shouldn't I be here? Right. I think this is, this is also an example of, of the adaptation lessening the importance of the yellow card man. Um, mm-hmm. because he's something very different now in the show. Because we lose the reboots, we don't see the discoloration of his card. Um, he kills himself in the book. Um, and so the yellow card man isn't as present in the, in the series as he and then the others like him who appear in the book were in the book. And so I think that, you know, as a viewer, it's clear that guy has importance, especially as he randomly shows up throughout the series. But in the book, it was very clear in the description of like, he had a yellow card and then his card started to fade and then the card turned black and he killed himself. And so it really clued you in as a reader that this is something that Jake is doing as opposed to just, this is a drunk person who is speaking these words. And I think because we get the repetition of you shouldn't be here from characters who aren't the yellow card man, it lessened his importance. Right, because he just kind of seemed to me like, like when he just starts showing up for no other reason apparently than to just seem creepy, uh, it, it started feeling more like a J.J. Abrams thing where it makes me feel like there's going to be some mystery that I'm trying to puzzle out. But then I just feel like at the end, I'm just going to be like, wait, why did he show up at the hospital? Was there a reason for him to be there? And I didn't feel like that ever got resolved. And at all, well, not, really. not only that, I felt like it. They they sort of uh, contradicted themselves in the miniseries because it, you know, in in the book, he the the yellow card man is sort of, for lack of a better word, he's sort of at part of some sort of cosmic time police. Yeah, he's you know, like an agent of time. Yeah, so he's he's there to monitor this this uh, time portal. Um, and in the in the book, they give him this bizarre thing that's like, oh, he's he's basically just another time traveler who is, instead of going back to save JFK, he's there to save his daughter who drowns in a pool. And, but he keeps saying like, yeah, I keep going back. I've done it hundreds and hundreds of times. And it's like, yeah, well, where does this daughter live? And why are you appearing all over the country? And all and, over Jake's timeline. And all over Jake's timeline. And all, and, and then, you know, his explanation at, you know, at the end when he says to him like, oh, now you've got another loop with Sadie. It's like, I, those that was just like word soup. Like none of that <laughs> meant anything. Like what 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 loop did he have with Sadie? Uh, you know, it, it didn't seem to. You know, it seemed like they were trying to feed you some sort of explanation, but because 
it felt like it hadn't really been thought out very well. And they were just like, well, we want to take this yellow card man from the book who was really cool, but we don't want to make him be the same thing as he was in the book. So let's make him something different. And then just throw in a bunch of like crazy explanations that don't even mesh up. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think his thing to Jake is that Sadie, Sadie's always going to die. And the only time he shows up prior to the end, uh, or he does show up again. And it's when Sadie's about to go into surgery. And mm-hmm. her anesthesia is messed up. And so the only explanation I can think is that because Sadie was about to die, that was a moment in Jake's loop where he would have lost Sadie. And so I don't know if he was there to say, you got it. This is a moment to help Sadie or not. Um, but because by the end, he felt so focused on like, she's always going to die no matter what you do. If you're here, um, that's the only explanation. But does I can he, come does up he, with. he shows up unrelated to Sadie, though? Doesn't he? Like when when he goes to um uh to see Kennedy give a speech near the beginning, doesn't yeah. he like see the yellow card man in the like hallway in the basement or something? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then there is that creepy time where Sadie goes over to Jake's house when she finds the the listening devices, yeah, and the recordings, the and he's just like creepily in a closet. Was that the yellow card man? I didn't even know who that was. I thought it was her ex-husband. I didn't uh, know who that was. I'm pretty sure that was the yellow card man. Yeah, that was Matt really and I were like, unclear. What the hell is that? And then it yeah. never is explained. Yeah, that was very unclear. Uh, all right, so well, let's talk about the ex-husband. Um, <laughs> that was actually my my least favorite part of this. Well, I thought um, his, I mean I thought the performance was fantastic. Just like so terrifying and menacing, and uh, very in in. Um, in the spirit of classic Stephen King villains, that it's like it's not the evil monster that's the scary thing; it's the the crazy person with a knife and a gun who's the scary thing. Um, that I thought, I don't know. I I although it was, I mean, it definitely was a big tonal shift from the rest of the show. Um, I thought T.R. Knight did a great job, and it you know it was successfully terrifying. Yeah, there wasn't necessarily anything wrong with the character in and of himself. I just felt like he, he like you're saying, he felt like he had wandered in from some other story. Because mm-hmm. um, cause this felt like like a political science fiction time travel thriller kind of thing. And then it, like in these kind of Stephen King characters just kind of wander in. And like it was a big tonal shift, like you said. Yeah. But also just the thing about like the clothespin. <laughs> I don't <laughs> I don't know, Matt, like if you've read the book, if that makes any kind of sense. But it made no sense whatsoever to me. I had no idea what she was talking about. Is this guy's penis a clothespin? Is it the size of a clothespin? Like I had no idea what was going on at all. We, we, he, so Sadie said, and there was a clothespin, and Matt and I both paused, we paused it, we went, what did she just say? I immediately googled 112263 clothespin, there were multiple think pieces going, what (laughs) is going on with the clothespin? And it's a king thing that he's written about that's this creepy fetish, and it's like a complete ima- thing out of King's imagination, I think. And it's just a fucked up little tidbit of, sorry, I used, it's, it's, <laughs> but it is, it's fucked up. It's a very gross and stark fetish. And it makes you go, what is going on with this character? But it definitely took me out of the moment entirely. But what, what, what is, what is the fetish I, though? I think it's just sort of an S&M thing, right? Where you, yeah. you're wearing the clothespin because it's like pinching you basically on yeah. your genitals. Yeah, and it, it, it's it, it's on part of him. 
yeah. in his genital area. But then it was implied <laughs> that it was something that his mother had done to him. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. like, it just, you know, it, it was just one of those things that completely took me out of the moment because I was so confused. And well, yeah, it's funny, though, that you're. Well, I mean, I guess King was involved with the miniseries as well, but the, the clothespin's not in the book, by the way. No, no, it's in like some short story of his, I think. Okay, yeah, but I mean, in the book, he's he's equally creepy and weird, particularly, and ha- has bizarre sexual hangups and is like awful to to her. Um, but it, it doesn't involve a clothespin, at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think that it was a choice to create shock value and something I'm feeling more and more strongly about in fiction and TV right now is that if you're going to make a choice just for the sake of shock value, it's probably not the right choice Mm -hmm. because it does take the reader or the viewer out of the moment. And this clothespin thing, I mean, I, it took me out of the moment. I had to Google clothespin sex on my phone (laughs) in like a private browser. Like, I didn't, yeah. I didn't know what I was supposed to think because on some level I was like, this must be important. It's so strange. It must have relevance. And then for it to just be a thing, um, made it even more odd. But here we are all talking about it. And it's one of the most, I think it's one of the most memorable things in the show because it's just so weird and out of the blue. And so, you know, maybe, yeah, you were disconnected from the show when that happened, but. It's uh, for me. It's one of the most memorable things, and one of the strangest things that's worth talking about. So I don't know. Does that make it a wrong choice? Well, I, I think if there had just been a little more explanation, that would have helped. I mean, I think actually, like ironically, there should have been if they were going to have it in at all, there should have been more about it. Because not only did I have absolutely no idea what was going on, but I also felt like basically, like this, there's no the only character development of this guy is that he had he's a sexual deviant, he's mentally ill, and he's thoroughly evil. And I thought that that tied those three things together in a way I found kind of off-putting, uh, as if they were all the same thing. Right. And I think if the character had been developed more, you know, I would be, I would be fine with those three, three things going together if they were, if it was developed in that way. But it, like, just the, the, just the like, boom, 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 here's these three things about him. He's evil. You know, he's despicable. That's all you need to know. I just found kind of off-putting. Well, I, I think it's also, there's never a real moment in the show of Sadie saying, but I loved him at one point or there was a good piece of him until the clothespin appeared or whatever, you know? So I never get a sense that he was okay, which makes me go, why would anybody even in the fifties force this young woman on this guy in, in marriage? Right. There there was, um, well, no one knew. Yeah. It was, he kept it secret. I, I don't know. I kind of think that, um, I, I, Dave, I think you're right that if they had given him more characterization but, but beyond those few tidbits about him, um, he may have felt like a more, um, well-rounded character. Um, but yeah, it just, I don't know, it did kind of feel like out of the blue, you know? Well, like the, the Frank Dunning character felt completely believable to me. Sure. I mean, he was an amazing villain, I thought. And I didn't feel, I just didn't feel the same way about the, the John Clayton character. Right. Um, and, and like the Frank, du- like, like one thing I'll say for this show that I thought it did really well, like the, um, the Frank Dunning character, they, like the characters in the sixties feel like 
characters of their time. Sure. Just the way they act and the way they talk, mm-hmm. all the uh, the costumes, I guess, and the sets and everything uh, just felt really, really had a lot of authority um, for me. Well, let me yeah. let me to, to to build on that. Like, I know I've been saying a lot of negative stuff, but th- I mean, there definitely were things that I did enjoy about this. And I, I, I mean, two that stuck out for me where I thought Daniel Weber was amazing as Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah, I mean, yeah. to me, that was like one of the best performances I've seen all year. It, it was amazing. Um, and I thought that um, the miniseries, you know, in terms of speaking of the the sort of realism of the time, the miniseries definitely did a better, better job of engaging with the racial tensions of the past than the book did, because it only gets a couple of passing references in the book. Like, like King realized, like, oh, I have to address this. And so, you know, he just threw in like one or two scenes just to remind the reader, like, yeah, 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 I know it was not all rosy back then. But, but I think by, by bringing it into the, the, the forefront of the miniseries a lot more, um, you know, it did a better job handling that. But then the last thing I'll say, it's actually funny. Like, I, I agree that all the characters felt very real to the time, but I disagree, Dave, about the look of the, the film. I, I actually found the look of the miniseries really, really, um, fake looking. Like, I, I, I it just, every single scene to me looked like, a movie set. I mean, I felt like even when we had outdoor scenes, like I was like, this isn't a real outdoor scene, is it? These are fake trees. Like I felt like everything, I don't know if it was the lighting or the fact that everything was just a little too glossy or um, I don't know. It all just looked very, very fake. Like I was looking at sort of like a set on a theater stage rather than watching a movie that was supposed to pull me in with its realism. And I actually thought the book did a, almost did a better job um, making the, 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 the visuals pop for me, even though they weren't visuals, you know, I mean, like I actually saw the, the realism and the grittiness and the, and the sort of the scenes in the book much, I, I thought they were much better done in the book. And I thought, and the film just looked very fake to me. So Chris, I definitely hear what you're saying. And there were certainly moments where it's like, these camera angles are very specific and I can kind of feel like that this is on a set, like that whole kind of chase in the last episode where they're like running through the parking lot with all the people and they run away from the car and the car crashes in the bus. It's like, that was, I mean, totally a backlot sequence. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, that, that did sort of pull me out of it a little bit. But one thing I'll say is that, you know, some of the historical moments uh, I thought were really well constructed that like when they run past the grassy knoll, yeah. And yeah, yeah. And I'm look like as a I'm a big like JFK conspiracy nut, like not that I believe any of these conspiracy theories, but I find the whole kind of um all the narratives that have cropped up around them very interesting. And so knowing a lot of these characters, you're running past the knoll, and it's like, oh, there's the brooder, and like <laughs> there's that old lady and with the camera, and like you can sort of see um you see all of these people who've kind of become iconic in like conspiracy uh circles like you you recognize them all from the various theories and other retellings of this historical moment yeah that just gave me chills when he's running through the zapruder film basically right right Uh, and that was actually filmed in dealey plaza that that scene yeah yeah i mean like the overpass is very iconic visually um the book depositories um, now has become a very you know um easy to recognize building um, that aspect of it I thought was pretty cool. Um, yeah, and I think it, you know, I, I think that, especially this last episode, that 
that had so much of, um, had so much of the, the moment that we all know, um, I think it works really nicely as a companion piece for some of the other, um, media that's sort of popped up around the event, whether it's, yeah, um, the Oliver Stone film, JFK, um, or any of the other adaptations. Well, Matt, so, um, I'm not much of a JFK conspiracy buff, so I was sure. really not very familiar with the General Walker and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. How historically accurate was all that stuff? Well, um, well, truthfully, I, I actually, I did not know anything about General Walker until, um, until this series. Um, but I was aware of like, you know, that very famous photo of Oswald with the gun and, and the pamphlets, um, and, uh, and some of the other sort of like characters that appear in the plaza, um, are people that, you know, some, some theorists recognize as possibly having a, having a role in the, in the assassination. But like that, the George guy who was maybe his CIA. Right. So he's a, he's a historical character, um, I believe. And, Mm -hmm. um, so like there's, you know, there's the shot of Cherry Jones towards the end where she's being interviewed on film about her son. And that's, that's historical. I mean, it's not, it's, it's Cherry Jones, but it's a remake of historical footage. Um, you know, there's a bunch of, uh, little moments like that. So. I don't she know. Was, I mean, like, she was great too. She was, oh, yeah. she was fantastic in this. Yeah. I mean, Chris, do you know any, anything about the historical? No, I mean, I'm certainly, uh, certainly not as much as Matt would know. I, I, no, I, I really don't know that much about the time period, but I mean, it did seem like, um, in the afterward in the book, it, from, if I understood what, uh, King was saying, pretty much everything, with, I can't remember what he said. There was like one, one thing that he changed the date of, you know, to, to make it fit his plot. But, but basically, I think all the things that seemed like they were historical actually were historical in this book. I mean, I think he really thoroughly researched it. And I think, um, you know, I think all these, these characters like, you know, George DeMorschlitz or whatever his name is and all these other people. Um, and, you know, of course we had that, that one scene in the, what was it in the strip club with, uh, Jack Ruby with Jack Ruby. And, you know, like, I mean, all, you know, all these people were, were actually people floating around this event and, and in, up to and including you were asking me about General Walker. Uh, again, if I understood the afterward in 112263, that, that was all historical as well. Right. There was, speaking of a nightclub, there was a scene where he's like, try, oh, he, so he's, he's eavesdropped on George and the, FBI guys or CIA guys or whatever they were. And then he goes upstairs and there's somebody having sex and the scene kind of ends. Oh, I yeah. had no idea what was going on there. Yeah. Again, that was one of these random things that were just added to the, cause the, that entire, that was in the Spanish restaurant, right? Yeah. 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 That entire Spanish restaurant scene wasn't in the book. And, and I feel like, again, it was kind of thrown together and it's like, I don't know. It felt like there were a lot of little floating bits of things left over from scenes that they meant to follow up on, but then they never did. And that, and yeah, that sex scene was one of them. I assumed that that was George cheating on his wife, but again, it was unclear if that actually was. Huh. All right. Well, so, so Jordan, what did you think of the Dealey Plaza stuff and the climax of the movie and all that kind of stuff? I was, I was really into it. I think that you know, going back to that phone booth, I was expecting there to be a lot more obstacles for them, aside from just 
the guy saying, no, I'm, I, the, I locked the door. And then, oh, the stairway only goes up to the fourth floor. We have to run across a floor to get to the other stairway. Um, I was, I, I think that for an event as important as the JFK assassination, I expected there to be a little more, there just to be more obstacles. I think yeah. that, um, it was really well plotted and it just the the tension was definitely there for me throughout the entire sequence the moments when i started to go i still don't feel like i fully understand the machinations of everything else that's happening is once jake gets arrested and he has the conversation with the fbi agent and then the fbi guy's boss comes in and is like this is all okay um i was kind of like but why like I, I believe Jake's story, and I think that, you know, if you did a little research into Lee Harvey Oswald, you would see that Jake's story probably pans out. But I still just, I was like, why, why is he getting off so easily so quickly? But now, to see, wrap up a, wrap up the story. <laughs> well, I don't know if this is, I, I thought what was going on was that outside the room, they were like listening in on the conversation. And when he started mentioning that he had all this dirt on Hoover, then they're like, all right, let's get let him go. Yeah. But I don't know if that is what was intended or not. That's, that's a good idea. That's a good theory. I can yeah. get behind that. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think uh, it was a little easier to swallow in the book because they actually have Jake Epping like throwing a heck of a lot more stuff at them, which I think also not only did, were they afraid like, Oh, he's going to reveal all this secret stuff and Hoover doesn't want this. Uh, like it, it also made it, easier to believe that they thought he might have actually also been working for some sort of government agency, whether it was a, a, a parallel U.S. government agency or a Russian agency or a Cuban agency or some, somehow that he was like someone high up who was kind of their ally, but like was secret enough and powerful enough that they didn't even know about him. And in the book, they did a better job of making that believable um, here. What kind of stuff did they did he share? I'm just curious. Uh, there was a lot more stuff about George uh, de or or more yeah uh, stuff about uh, Papa Doc uh, Duvalier and and um, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember now. There, I just remember he th- he he basically threw in the kitchen sink like all the stuff that he knew right. that he should that that the average person would not have known. Right. He he kept throwing at them, and they were just like more and more like, wait, what? Uh, right. Who are you? How do yeah. you know this? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so it, it worked a little bit, uh, more seamlessly in, in the book. I, you know, I, I actually, but I, you know, I think to me, the, the, it, it, the, the miniseries got better as it went along. I think I had more problems earlier on because I felt like a lot of things were sort of gratuitously just kind of shoved into the, you know, at the, at the viewer. But then once I was like invested and I was in it, yeah, I mean, by the time we get to that final scene, I agree. It was really tense. I thought it was, um. You know, I, I was right there with it. I, I agree. I wish there would have been a few more meaningful obstacles in the way. I, I think the only complaint I had about that ending was um, the reason for uh, Sadie being there. Yeah, yeah. Because, it, you know, in the book, it was very clear that Jake Epping was just like, okay, fine. I, I need your help. I can't do this alone. Because in the book, he literally, he can barely walk. He's on crutches. He was his beating for as bad as it seemed in the movie was way worse in the book. And so, like, he literally needed to, like, have her all but carry him down the street. Um, 
And so he had to have someone with him or he would have never, ever made it there on time. Um, but here she just sort of says something like, well, you know, I know this is your mission, but it's now my mission too. And she, he's just like, oh yeah, okay. Uh, you know, c- come on, let's do it. And I, and I feel like it, it, I, I, there wasn't enough to justify that. I mean, he's running around fine in this movie. I mean, he's literally sprinting up the stairs without crutches. Whereas in the book, it was like grueling for him to get up those stairs because he, he could barely walk. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I felt like it was it was really obvious to me that, you know, she's only along here so that something bad can happen yeah, to her. Yeah. And yeah. especially like bringing her into the room where he knows there's a guy with a gun waiting. I mean, like I, I thought bringing her along at all was a little impossible, but particularly that, like, you know, you, you should have just been like, OK, you can like just wait out in the hall or, or something, you know. Yeah. And again, in the book, it's because he's like, listen, I might not make it up the stairs. You're my backup. You kill him if I can't, because he it was like the last ditch effort. And he needed, you know, he didn't actually know if he'd be able to climb the stairs. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. But but yeah, other than that, uh, (laughs) I got, you know, it's sort of a big thing. But I mean, you know, you can kind of forget about that in the moment. You know, it was definitely a really tense, uh, well done sort of climax. So then, Jordan, what did you think about when he returns to the present? What did you think about that part? I, you know, having read the book, I kept waiting for the time police to show up uh, and, and the, the people to say, you're about to, like, ruin the universe if you keep doing this and if you keep going through uh, the this portal and changing things. Um, so I, I think I was a little... I was expecting something that never came because that was never the goal of the show to explain the the true repercussions of Jake doing all of this. Um, you know, I think Harry is such a sympathetic character in both the book and the show um, that you know I I enjoyed watching him. You know, acknowledge that he recognized Jake and you know, explaining what happened in a quicker way than I think it happens in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it worked for me. I think it very quickly cut, there was a very quick cut from him leaving um, Harry and then just suddenly being back, um, like rebooting. But I think that it it definitely worked for me. I just kind of expected it to be even darker and hor- more awful. I don't know what I was expecting, but I I was expecting like pure like nuclear fallout everywhere. Um, yeah, I'll be honest. I think that going back to the present was the most disappointing moment of the whole show for me, um, because it's sort of it. I think especially on rewatch, it would make the stakes of everything seem totally irrelevant because it's like, well, why are like you're doing this and you're doing it for a stupid reason because. There's nothing good that's going to come of it. So why are you doing any of this stuff at all? And I I don't know, maybe it's my own political leanings, but I find it totally implausible that, like, that this, that this event would create this kind of cataclysmic future. I mean, unless it's like after eight years of, of JFK, everyone's sick of it and starts voting for, you know, psycho conservatives. Well, no, that's Um, what they said, right? George Wallace got. Wallace wins. Right. Yeah. I mean, right, I, which I just, I just don't, I, I don't believe that that's plausible. Um, but you know, I, like, I don't know. Is I couldn't, I couldn't really figure out what King was saying in that sequence, and I also didn't quite understand what they were saying about the camps. Like that didn't really make any sense at all. It's like so every all major cities all got nuked, and then 
refugees went to these camps and then everyone started like murdering each other in these camps for no explainable reason. Yeah. It wasn't really defined in a way that I could really pinpoint other than, oh, this is really bad. I should go fix it. Yeah. But that's the other thing is it's like as soon as he walks out and it's like wreckage everywhere. You're just like, well, oops, better undo this. I should just (laughs) take, I should walk right back. Yeah. Like what's the, uh, it's dumb. (laughs) <laughs> well, not, not point, mention, where's but, the diner be like what happened yeah, like yeah. his focus was on the diner and, and and also not to mention just the way that last scene was blocked he was literally you know there were three hoodlums on his heels as he goes through the time tunnel why did they not fall through with him right or or if they saw him vanish why did they not then be like hey that's weird let's see what happened and just like walk two feet forward and they would have fallen through too because i mean it's a the time tunnel exists independent of Jake Epping. So it's like, you know, once someone discovers it, there'd be nothing to stop everyone from going through. See, now I think we're very close to entering, like, breaking the the way that this time travel works, right? Because it's like, if you are always going into the exact same moment, wouldn't a second person that follows you in create a new loop that begins a different timeline that happens, you know, two or three seconds earlier but is at the same moment. So now you're traveling in separate time paradoxes. But if you then are both going to return, then how does the timeline get reset if you return at different rates? Like, are the things that you changed in one created a different present from the things that the second person... You see what's happening now? It all yeah, yeah, yeah. like five seconds. It's just, it becomes utterly stupid and, and impossible. Well, you know, and I think his whole idea of bringing Sadie back, I was always like, how is that actually going to work? Right. They actually do address that in... in- the time police talk about that in the book because I think what would happen if two people went through, see, every time you go through and there's a reset, you're creating a parallel universe and all of these universes now exist, which is what's making the time police guy, the yellow card man go crazy because he's trying to keep all these universes square in his head. So if two people went through, you would just have two completely separate universes that are added into that giant pile of universes. Oh, wow. So, like, you know, I mean, Al, every time he was going back to buy his hamburger meat, and and in the book, it's, you know, he's been running this diner for a decade decade or two. So he's gone through literally thousands of times. And every time he goes through, for the most part, he doesn't make very many changes, but it still creates yet another universe. And all of these universes now exist alongside each other. Hamburger meat, huh? (laughs) Yeah. The end of the universe. Caused yeah. by hamburgers. It's it's how he kept his prices so low. I mean, so Dave, not knowing about the parallel universes, would that have affected your uh, opinion of the ending? Uh, wait, say that again? So, like, the time police do not exist in the miniseries. We never address the fact that it's creating different universes and strings of time. Had that been part of the miniseries, would you have a different opinion? Well, I don't know. I mean, like, any sort of time travel that involves a single timeline is never going to make any sense at all. But I just kind of went with it. I mean, I, I, I wasn't too bothered about that. Um, so, no, so I guess, no, I, I think just I, I gave them that one. Um, I think you have to uh, in any kind of story about where you can go and change, change the past and then go back to the present and all that kind of stuff. I, there's a certain level you just can't think about it too hard. Uh-huh. Um, I want to say though about the I, I think that's a really interesting twist that saving JFK actually results in a worse future 
And I, I do think it's plausible, Matt. I mean, I think anything is is plausible. Like you never know. Just like, and I th- this ties into sort of um, the theme of Game of Thrones that I really like. That just because someone is a good person doesn't mean that they're going to be a good leader. And just because someone has good intentions doesn't mean that the consequences of those actions are going to be good. You you never you know things aren't good intentions and good outcomes aren't connected in that kind of a way. Right. And so it's it's completely plausible to me that this might happen. Right? Sure. Um. I, th- I think the issue, though, is like you were saying, I mean, I think it's interesting. I was fine with it. But I, I think like you're saying, it it kind of makes it so you get to the end and and you say, oh, well, that didn't work. Let me just reset everything. And it's an easy choice. It's an easy, That's an easy decision to reset everything because it's right. been such it's a horrible. like blatantly horrible outcome. Right. And and so actually, uh, my girlfriend, Stephanie, like her big problem with the ending is that she thinks what should have happened is that he should have gone back to the present and it actually should have been a better present. But now he has a choice between do I want to keep this good present and live without Sadie or have her die at the age of 25 or 30 or whatever, or go back and try to save her at the expense of this good future. And there would be kind of an interesting dilemma for him there. Right. That's another whole episode worth of drama. <laughs> had they No, seriously, if, had they done that? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, that would have been, I think, a much more emotionally conflicted way of resolving the story. I don't, you know, I, I guess the problem is I, I have no problem with the idea that it, you know, th- it could have ended up with a, a much darker future, even though JFK, you know, had the best of intentions. Um, and, and again, you know, I think they explained that a little bit better in the book, even though I agree with Jordan, it was overly explained. But, um, but, but I, I, I wrestled with this when I read the book and when I watched the miniseries about, well, what would I do in his shoes? I mean, would I try to, you know, meet Sadie all over again and hope that the circumstances would allow us to fall in love again and somehow or another either stay in the past with her um, without trying to stop the assassination and or convince her to come back with me to the future. And I I wondered why he didn't do that. And the only explanation I could think of is that he was afraid that even doing that, you know, could have resulted in a a far darker future um, somehow, like through, you know, the butterfly effect. Um, well, I, th- I thought in the show, the yellow card man was telling him that Sadie's always going to die no matter what you do. So yeah, just give but, up now. But, but again, like, I, and, and, and his response to that is just what to, to believe this lunatic's ramblings, <laughs> you know, after, you know, and like I said, it'd be one thing if he went back 20, 30, 40 times and somehow or another, she always dies, but like he, she's only died once so far. And, and he's just taking it on faith that like, oh, yeah, if I do this, she's probably going to die. Maybe, I, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I wouldn't have necessarily believed that, you know, blindly in his shoes. But I don't know. I mean, maybe we're expected to believe that he had some, you know, he sort of. I don't know, it's not 2020 hindsight. I don't know what you would call it because of the time shift, but it's sort of like he maybe he had this idea that, you know what? Maybe she would just be absolutely fine on her own. And there's no, you know, I don't need to be part of her future. And it was like the one sort of selfless decision he made. And, um, you know, obviously that it turns out that she did have an amazing life once, once he goes back and finds out in the future. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm ambivalent about that aspect of it because like I, I, I can understand why he did what he did. Or didn't do what he did, but at the same time, I'm not sure it's in keeping with his personality as it's portrayed in the miniseries. 
Mm. How about Jordan? What did you think of the scene where he goes and meets woman of the year, 80 year old Sadie? Oh, I, I love, I love that scene. I loved it in the book. I loved it. I was, I kept thinking that they weren't going to go there in the show because they had changed so much. I just, I think it's a lovely ending. Um, and I've felt strongly about that since the book came out. I think that, you know, at the heart of the story, it, the book turns into a, a love story between two people. And I like that. And I like that, you know, he realizes that saving JFK isn't the right call and that letting her live her life is the best thing for her. Um, in the book, though, she still is brutally attacked by the husband, even if he's not there. So she's scarred when he meets her as an adult, but, or a, an old lady. But I, I think that the book also chooses to not have him meet her in Maine. So when he goes back when she's 80, it's a much more cosmic moment of her being like, yeah, I do think I, I know you on some level. Because he never goes up to her in Maine, covered in dirt, and tells her her life story like a total freak. Um, of course you would remember that freak. <laughs> um, so it definitely has more poignancy in the book where she's just like, yes, on some level I feel like I know you. And that really worked for me more than, yeah, I think I remember you. <laughs> I, I would remember that guy. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with that, Jordan. I, I agree it was much more poignant in the book. Do you guys know about jo how Joe Hill suggested that and there's the two different endings? Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. He says in the afterward that his that Joe helped him change the ending, but I didn't know which aspect of the ending he was talking about. Well, he so apparently say, yeah. originally, like Sadie had gotten married and had 11 grandkids and all this stuff. And Joe Hill suggested that she should have like never gotten married, never had kids and just dedicated her life to public service. And so it's more of a, a bittersweet kind of feeling. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, I agree that's a better ending th than having her have the 11 grandkids. What I want is the deleted scene where Jake Googles Bill. <laughs> and yeah, what the heck? What happened to Bill? <laughs> I feel like if nothing else, I mean, I understand whatever, that dramatically you couldn't do it for the miniseries, but yeah. How about when he realizes he completely ruined that dude's life by committing him and then, well, I mean, it wasn't his fault he got beaten up, but then the guy kills himself. Like, at that point, maybe he would have said, I better go back and reset and yeah. just come back and like, okay, I'll have to spend another year doing this. But he, he would have been better equipped to do it. He had more information. Yeah. You know? I don't know. Because that, that, again, it was just like, dude. <laughs> All right, so wait, so my idea for what he should have done is he should have just gone back in time, killed Oswald right away, gone back to the present, saw what kind of difference that made, and then, like, try to go back and do it. Or, right. you know, like, because, like, if, as long as you can reset and people, I, that was what, that, I guess that's a little unclear to me in the show if there's just a single timeline. But, like, if he goes back and kills someone who's already dead in the present and then goes back and resets it, like, did they really die? How much suffering no. did they have? I don't know. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Right. Well, that's so that that's I think there were two two issues with that. One is his sort of moral dilemma about it. Like one thing I thought that they did really nicely was although he is, you know, um, Franco is killing people throwout the series. He's, <laughs> it, he doesn't like doing it and it messes him up. 
Um, that was something that I actually really liked that, it, that it, he, he had these moral struggles that kept him from being like an efficient time assassin. Um, but the other thing is that I, they explain this a couple times that like when, when he goes back in time, uh, Oswald is not in the United States. So there right. is oh, like, he yeah. has to wait like over a year before he even shows up. Yeah, he's um, in Russia. Which I think is the thing. Although, I mean, you could Fly buy a plane ticket to Russia. I don't know if he wants to go to Russia at that time period, though. It's possible. Getting back might be hard. Yeah. So anyway, that was, I think, the, the, the narrative justification for why he doesn't experiment with hmm. that. Well, that's actually one thing that was really good about these time travel mechanics is that it raises the stakes a lot because it's yeah. not just like Back to the Future where uh, as long as we get back to the DeLorean, we can just do, try this over again. Right. You know, you're, once you're... Once you've been there for a couple of years, you're you're committed, and starting over is a is a huge sacrifice at that point. Right. Also, in the book, it it was like twice as long because the the, the going back point was 1958, not 1960. Right. So you you would have had to have committed to another, you know, five years, not just uh, two or three years. Yeah. Yeah. But so okay, so if you guys actually ran into a time portal like this, what would you do? Well, when does it open? Yeah, exactly. Where, where do where? I get dumped? Well, no, say it was say it was this time portal. Oh. Like, would you... Like, one thing that's weird, like, I wonder if he should just, you know, did he ever think about calling the government or calling in some scientists to study this thing or something like that? I mean, seems like, wouldn't you have an obligation to do that? Like, who are you to personally take it upon yourself to... They address yeah. that in the book, and, and oh, I really? think... Yeah, I think... It's it's just sort of a throwaway line, but I don't remember if it's him or Al or someone just says like, "Oh my God, can you imagine a worse nightmare than the government having their hands on this thing and sending you know uh, crack squads to go back and manipulate the past?" Like you know, I, I, they they did address like the fact that it crossed their mind, and they were just like, "No, let's not let them have that power." Yeah, that's kind of how I feel. It's like I don't want some bureaucracy running my time portal. <laughs> but do you want just some random? Dude, running your time. Well, if, it's, if I'm the random dude, of <laughs> yeah, course, yeah. 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 <laughs> because it's it seems like well, I don't know. I mean, I, I thought it was ambiguous in this story whether, like, going back in time to save JFK was bad because that actually would result in bad consequences, just given the natural order of events, or is time just a giant asshole and it's making it? You know, time is somehow causing bad things to happen when you try to change mm. change things. Well, what was interesting was that it didn't seem to have much problem with him, like, making sports bets and, um, you know... Hooking up with people. Hooking up and buying expensive things. So I kind of feel like that's, you know, that's one way you could use the time portal. Well, it's also kind of like <laughs> in Doctor Who, there are fixed events. Right. And so there are things that the Doctor cannot change because they are fixed in time. And so something like the Kennedy assassination is such a turning point moment in history that I could see time not wanting it to be messed with as and caring less about making money off of a bet. All right, so we should just go back in time and place. That's the that's the moral of the story. Is if you ever yeah, find a time portal, meat. just go back <laughs> and get cheap meat and place bets. <laughs> I would I would I mean, I'm a nerd, but I would like go to Woodstock. Like, oh yeah, go go do all the things. Go live I, the sixties. Yeah, like just like live the sixties in the places I want to be. Um, see some 
shows on Broadway from the 60s, go to Woodstock, see Bowie doing Ziggy Stardust in the set. Like, <laughs> like that's what I would do if I had it. Because yeah, I mean, but, 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 but again, <laughs> you'd have to like, wait you know, forever. Yeah, you'd have to, yeah, you'd have to like, you know, wait whatever, seven years to see something in 1967. And then when you get back to your time, you're seven years older. So unless you have like no familial connections back there, which, which Jake Epping didn't, right. um, you know, that, that would be another consideration too. It's like, well, yeah, you can go tool around in the past, but then you're basically giving up your life in, in the present. And there's no podcasts in the sixties. Oh so. man, I'm out. <laughs> Yeah. I loved I loved when she was like, tell me something about the future. And he's like, everyone always has their phone in their hands at all times. <laughs> she was yeah. like, tell me something true. <laughs> and I was like, it's so sad. She was very she was very Texan. That was something that I really liked about her characterization. Yeah, she's that, just like all of her all of her dialogue just like like resonated. Um Texas. Very Texas. Yes, yeah. Very North Texas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did a good job with that. Yeah. Well, I heard that in the book, she actually figures out that he's a time traveler rather than being told. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. She she waits for him to say it, and then she's like, "Yeah, I already figured that out." I think, if I'm remembering correctly. That's crazy. Yeah. She's smart. Well, because apparently, apparently in the book, it makes more of the fact that he uses all sorts of anachronistic phrases and expressions and things yeah. that, that really yeah. stand out. Yeah, uh, like what? Like quoting The Godfather at Miss Mimi. Oh, does no. he? Did he do that? Yeah, that's that. I thought that was only in the miniseries. Did he do that in the book too? Oh, I don't know, but that was in a uh, yeah that, moment that I found. That was awesome. That was actually a great moment yeah. in the miniseries. But I don't and think when he does... like when someone said, "Where where were you stationed in Korea?" Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. and he <laughs> stationed at the Mash Unit. <laughs> yeah, that was not in the book either. No, but I but the things that he does is like he'll just like in the moments when he's unguarded, he'll just start singing song lyrics. Right. That he like he was singing some Rolling Stone song that Sadie's just like that was the thing that finally tipped her off that something is wrong with him. She's like, "How are you singing the song?" And he's like, "Oh, I don't know. I must have heard it somewhere." And she's like, "You didn't hear a song like that because I can't I can't even remember what song it was." But she's like, "Those lyrics are way too risque. That would not be something you would hear on the radio. What? What? Where did you hear this song?" Right. Right. And, well, and then, in the show, he plays the Beatles for her on the piano, and it's um, mm-hmm. she's like, "Did you write that?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and and it's also you know just all these other little you know just little phrases that he uses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That she's just like, "You don't talk like anyone else I've ever met." What did you guys think of the fever dream where he's like jumping through time in the hospital? That kind of blew my mind. When it's like, it's his ex-wife, and then it's Sadie, there's a dude on a cell phone in the hall, Anderson, Anderson Cooper's Cooper. on the flat screen. Anderson Cooper yeah. talking about his girlfriend? <laughs> yeah. I just Time's all was... screwed up. <laughs> it's all He's messed straight. up. You went back in time, and Anderson Cooper is straight now. <laughs> yeah. I just assume that was all just... He was just dreaming that. Like, I don't think that actually was meant to <laughs> What be. a dream. Yeah. <laughs> what did you dream of, James Franco? <laughs> <laughs> I, it didn't bother me so much because, like Chris is saying, he had suffered brain damage. So it didn't bother me that he was seeing random people where it made no sense for them to be. It bothered me everywhere else in the series where he hadn't mm. suffered brain damage and he was just seeing random people who were, were just there for no reason. 
Oh, well, he's like his was, mind is playing tricks on him, and that was time or the time stream because the time time did it to Bill too, right? Bill thought he saw his sister. So um, what? So what happened? Yeah, like that. That was another thing that just there was no explanation for at all in the show. It's just time pushing back. So the yeah, that, time that, can just make you look like somebody else, or no, no, no. I think that was just that was like the 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 car hitting the phone booth. It was it was time trying to stop them from getting to the assassination on time. They they it, they weren't seeing someone that looked like someone else. They were just hallucinating, and you know. Oh. Huh. Yeah, I mean, it was like, um, you know, in the book. Oh no, this happened in the miniseries too. When he gets like a stomach flu when he's trying to kill the guy in Kentucky, right? Right. He gets really sick. Yeah, yeah and he's got and he's like throwing up. And in, in the book, he's like, he, it's even grosser. But um, <laughs> but but like you know, so it can obviously so time can also cause you to suffer physical ailments. Um, and, you know, and Al suspects that time caused him to get cancer to stop him from, uh, stopping the assassination. And so if it can do that, it can make you have like some sort of a little weird brain aneurysm where you're seeing something that's not there. Like, that's how I took that. Yeah. The thing with Al, I just assumed that was part of the story that he went back and he was trying to stop it and time gave him cancer so that he couldn't get all the way there. Mm -hmm. Well, and Al had been doing it. Over and over and over right, again. Right, 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 right. For his hamburger meat. So, like, he died for his cause. <laughs> okay, no, Chris, Chris, that's cool if time can actually give you a little brain aneurysm that causes you to hallucinate. I think that should have been explained, or at least, you know, implied somewhere if that was going to be in the show. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I am just filling in blanks there. I, I, I don't think it was explained, but that's, I think it, but I think it does mesh with yeah, some of makes, the other stuff sense, that we do yeah. now. I was going to say, though, it, it was funny because right before this, I was just curious about the, you know, the George and General Walker. And so I just Googled, is 11-22-63 historically accurate? And the first page I looked at, it says, this is the most historically inaccurate book I've ever read. It says that Oswald <laughs> acted alone. <laughs> okay. Nice. Well, there, there you go. Oh. Doesn't everyone know that the comedian shot Jake? <laughs> Well, yeah, Matt. You said you're a, you're into. What do you think is the most uh, convincing JFK conspiracy theory? Like, if you had to pick a conspiracy theory, like what's your or the, what's the yeah. most inter- interesting um, or your favorite or something? You know, it's hard because I think that like a lot of the conspiracies that people have wondered about over the last, let's say, seventy five years, they've pretty much all come to light at this point. Like, we know who Deep Throat is now. That's a big one, and I think that. It, it's getting harder to, um, find a plausible conspiracy theory that, like, holds up just because, like, wouldn't we really know by now? Um, what I will say is that there are a number of, um, things about the assassination that don't match up in my mind, don't, don't add up. And, and that I find really interesting to kind of speculate on. Um, like uh the magic bullet and um and then the sort of the timing that Oswald chose to line up his shots is also very interesting. Um this was something that I I was just kind of telling Jordan about because it's it's always been very strange to me that like the book depository sits at an intersection of a bend in, like an L bend in, in the road that kind of winds into Dealey Plaza. And if you're on the 6th floor of the book depository the street that's leading toward the building that the motorcade was riding down, you have an incredibly easy shot 
of just, you know, the car is coming toward you. JFK's head would be pretty much stationary, getting larger in your field of vision. It's an incredibly easy shot to take. Whereas if you wait until the car turns into Dealey Plaza, then it's moving diagonally and away from you and at, a, at an angle. And it's a much, you have to lead the shot. It's a much more difficult shot to make. So he was either incredibly stupid and incredibly lucky by making the wrong decision in how to line up the shot and then successfully taking the shot. Um, or there was another reason why he chose to wait until they had made the turn into the plaza. And, of course, one of the things that people suggest is that uh, if there were multiple shooters, say, one on the grassy knoll, um, then it becomes a triangulated kill. So you've got multiple shooters from different angles, kind of all firing at a central target. You're much more likely to hit if you wait until you're in the plaza at that point. I think they actually address that in the book, um, and they make it be a conscious decision that Oswald made because he reasoned that if he did it while he had that easy open shot while they were all coming toward him, that all the Secret Service surrounding the car would have right away seen where the shot was coming from. And then if he had had to make a second or a third shot, he would have been under fire himself. Oh, interesting. So he waited until they had made that turn and where they, you know, basically they have their backs to him. And so it would have given him just those extra few seconds to take the second and the third shot. Oh, well, okay. So like I said, conspiracy theories are all garbage. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a really interesting explanation. I've never heard that. And Well, uh, I don't know if King came up with that on his own, but right. if he did, it, it is, I agree, it's, it is an interesting explanation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I know that, so King did a ton of research uh, leading up to writing the book, making sure that he kind of knew everything. I know that he was really intrigued. I think I read an article in the New York Times a long time ago when the book came out, where he was really intrigued by all of the possible explanations for what had happened. And that after all the research that he did, he concluded that, that, that Oswald acted alone. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, I mean, th- it, that's what he, you know, that was his conceit. And I think, you know, I think that the story works that that way. I think it would have been a, a different and equally interesting book if he'd gone back in time and some vast conspiracy was uncovered and then Jake has to sort of mm. unravel it. Like, that also would have been a very interesting story that I would have kind of gone along with. Huh. I don't know. Have you been to Delia Plaza, Matt? I have not. Jordan, have you? I have, but it was a long time ago. So on a school field trip. Because I was, like, the thing that struck me about it when I was there is how small it is. Like, it's yeah. it's a lot smaller than you would think just from watching the Zapruder film and stuff. And, right. you know, the, it's you're, like, so close to the, you know, the building, the window is so close to the street and everything. So, yeah. I don't know, just, just my experience based on spending my whole life in the United States is the idea of an angry guy with a gun has the president drive by the place where he works and takes a shot at him. That just seems like the kind of thing that would happen. In America. In, United, in America. <laughs> well, I mean, presidents don't drive around in convertibles anymore. Right. Yeah. Well, of course, we all know that it was the smoking man in the sewer. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, no, that's why, because that's why, it was Oswald, the comedian, and the smoking man. All that's right. The, those they three. had to get him into the triangulated oh, area. Oh, man. Yeah. That is a fan film waiting to happen. <laughs> Sounds really good. All three of them were like, what? Who shot? What? What? Yeah. This is my job. They all thought they were acting alone. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So why did so why did Jack Ruby shoot uh, Oswald? That's what I still don't understand. That's another that's another sort of lingering factoid about the whole uh, conspiracy theory thing. I kept waiting for Jack Ruby to show up. Well, yeah, that I thought. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. No, no, no. I think we were going to oh, say the same thing. Yeah, I right. They well, were so that whole that. sequence when they're leading, when they, you know, uh, Jake, Jake gets sucker punched in the elevator, and then they kind of lead him out. In it, it cuts to black and white. There's all the press around. I'm like, oh my god, Jack Ruby's going to shoot James Franco. I was yeah. really nervous. <laughs> I actually think that was a missed opportunity. I actually think they should have added that in the in the miniseries, and 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 they could have had, you know. James Franco would have known it was coming and he could have seen Jack Ruby and been like, you know, cover me. That guy's got a gun. And, you know, he could have stopped himself from getting killed, but it would have just added an extra little bit of that scene. Yeah. No, I really like that. That's good. See, I was just going to say the reason that Jack Ruby shot Oswald is because it's America and people are just shooting people all the time. (laughs) Just statistically speaking, it was pretty like, right. 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 Because that's another, you know, so another, uh, one popular conspiracy theory is that the mob killed JFK and that Jack Ruby's involvement kind of is one of the big things that, that uh, leads toward that explanation. Yeah. Well, I don't know if, again, you know, assuming that King did his research, uh, something I learned from this book that I didn't know beforehand was that. So Ruby, uh, according to 112263 was like the only reason he was able to get that shot is because he was like best buds with all the cops in in Dallas. And so he he was in a place where normally, you know, just random people wouldn't have been allowed to be, but he just kind of wandered in and was like, hey, you know, hey Joe, hey Bob, you know, yeah. like just wandered in and they because they all knew him. He was like their pal. Right. Um, wow. And and that's the only reason he was able to get access to even take that shot. Yeah. Crazy. I mean I think it's it's a real you know, element of the time period that, you know, Oswald was even able to walk into the building with a giant gun <laughs> in a bag. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen a, a presidential motorcade in modern times these days, but you're like standing by the side of the road and like 50 cars go by at like 120 miles an hour. Yeah, and, you and they're all the same. <laughs> and they're all the same, yeah. And you're like, okay, I saw the president. He's in one of those limos. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I I just have to say that I really enjoyed James Franco. I know some people <laughs> have not enjoyed James Franco, but I have a soft spot for him and I just enjoyed the heck out of him in this show. I don't have anything against James Franco. Actually, I've liked him in a lot of stuff and I, and I don't blame him for the problems that I had with him in this. I I, I blame just you know, the material he was working with. Like, I think, yeah, he was fine. He wouldn't have necessarily been the person I would have cast. I I would have cast someone who had a little more, I don't know, gravitas or something. Like, he seems a little too freewheeling for the guy I pictured as Jake Epping. Mm -hmm. Like, I pictured a more sort of straight-laced, maybe slightly older-looking guy, even though he was young. But, um... But no, I mean, I, I thought he did a great job with with what he he had to work with, for sure. Did, Did you hear the story about how he got cast? No. no. Yeah, so he 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 tweeted, James Franco tweeted, I just read 112263 and I want to option it, but like JJ Abrams has it already or something like that. Hmm. And the people you know who made this saw that and they're like, "Oh my god, James Franco's interested in this. We should get him to star in it." And <laughs> it's just the power of Twitter. That's, power a, that's of Twitter. amazing. He tweeted about it. That's crazy. Wow. Something I wanted to talk about is just this this series as like event TV, 
Like, I was captivated by the structure of it, the way that the story was told, the delivery system of it, like watching it on Hulu, um, mm-hmm. the release schedule of it, um, and being able to tell a complete story in eight hours. Like, I know miniseries have been around for a long time, but they weren't calling it a miniseries. Um, and I think that that's something that I'm really intrigued by this kind of television. And I, I would love, love, love to see more of it because I thought it was executed very well. And from a structural standpoint, like being able, um, to evolve plot lines at their natural pace, resolve them at their natural pace, kill characters, um, all of that just felt, it was very satisfying to be able to watch the complete story in just this little bit and not have to like go, oh, well, now he's going to go back and do it all again. Hmm. And you'll see that in season two. Well, no, because I, I, I listened to an interview with the writer and she said that they, to- they told her just make it as many episodes as you feel is appropriate. And she started out thinking it would be six and then it was, or I think it was, I don't know, first it was four, then it was six, then it was nine, then it was eight. And, you know, she was just able to make it whatever the story worked best yeah. for the story she wanted to tell. It's awesome. Yeah, I feel really strongly about this. I'm all about event TV and having a series be limited and wrap up properly at the end and not feel like you have to leave the door open. And as a viewer, I have so much TV that I need to consume that it's nice to know that I can just watch eight episodes and be done and have a fully, like, a fully grounded experience that I feel good about and appreciate without being like, oh, God, who are they going to kill or make pregnant or disappear at the end of this season (laughs) so that they're going to make me come back? And so I really hope that, especially with the rise of so many streaming platforms, that more studios take the risk to say, we're going to give you the funding to make the series you need to make in 10 episodes, eight episodes, and that's it. And if it means that we have to start looking at the kinds of deals we're creating with showrunners and writers to say, okay, you're going to do one season of this, but so why don't we say that we'll give you three different series to greenlight that would essentially be a three-year contract? I think we should look at that from a perspective of the development teams and the studios and all of the new streaming opportunities that are out there, just because I think viewers are interested in different kinds of viewership these days. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. So, uh, yeah, we should, I think we should start wrapping this up. Does anyone have any, any final thoughts, anything else they want to add? Uh, it was good. <laughs> <laughs> it was good. I want to know what happened to Bill. Poor Bill. Yeah. What was Bill's life without <laughs> Franco? Do we ever find out what happens to Bill in the book? I, I mean, I know he wasn't a major character as in the book, but I know I, I don't think we do ever find I, out, do we? I, I don't think we do. I mean, my guess is that his life with um, Jake was a lot more exciting and interesting than it was ever going to be in Kentucky or Maine oh. or wherever it takes place in the book. Because um, all of that stuff in... The book is also, like, part of It. Right, right. Yeah, they're in the same town as It, which I haven't read, but I picked up on that. Like, there's all the references. Yeah, yeah, there's all the... No, no, it's Derry. uh, Yeah, it's Derry. Yeah, and everyone's talking about how there was this guy that used to kill people dressed like a clown and blah, blah, blah. So, so, yeah, no, so there's that. But I just remembered, actually. So in the book, when Bill shows up as he's about to kill... uh, you know, Harry, or whatever, Dunning, 
uh, and tries to stop him. Remember, Bill is like having a heart attack. And yeah. so I, it's on one of the resets, like he makes a point of leaving a letter for Bill to be but with a bartender and says, give this letter to Bill. And it's telling Bill, uh, this is when he goes back and resets it one time. And he says, telling Bill to go get his heart checked out of the doctor. So I think the implication is that he somehow has saved Bill from otherwise dying of a heart attack and like he's going to live a, a happy life. So they, they kind of indirectly address that in the book. Wait, so Bill is in the book? I'm confused. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. But, in the all book, the stuff with like falling in love with Oswald's wife and the whole thing? No, 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 no. no, no, no. Uh, he never in, goes in the with book, him. In the book, first of all, in the book, uh, Harry, the, the, the Harry Dunning scene is not in Kentucky. It's right, in it's, the, in it's in, in right. Derry, Maine. Um, and in Derry, Maine, Bill Turcotte, who also believes that this guy, as it is in the miniseries, has killed his sister. So he shows up, um, right as he's about to kill the guy and says, no, dude, I'm going to kill him because I've been waiting to do this my whole life and you're not going to take that away from me. And then when, when he kind of realizes that, like, uh, Jake Epping is there to stop this guy from murdering his whole family. Bill is just like, oh no, well then hold on. Neither one of us have to kill him. I'd rather, I'd much rather see this guy go down in disgrace and have his whole life ruined and spend his life, you know, behind bars, you know, or, you know, get life imprisonment for this and let everyone know what a scumbag he really is. And so then they have to kind of wrestle, uh, with each other. And eventually the only reason that Bill Turcotte doesn't stop him is because Bill Turcotte starts having a heart attack. Oh, wow. And Bill is, and Bill's a much older dude in the, right, in the right. book. He's not a young kid. And so, but then, but then he realizes Bill's not actually a bad guy. So that's why he leaves the letter to be like, you know, you should go get your heart checked out on, on one of the resets. Cause like I said, he goes back and forth a bunch of times in the book. Right. Cool. All right. Well, I hope this stuff is all addressed in the next season. 11, 22, 64, <laughs> Bill's excellent <Yeah>. adventure. <laughs> nice. Yes. All right, great. I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Matt London, Chris Avasco, and Jordan Hammersley London. So guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. It was fun. Thanks, Dave. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Matt London, Chris Avasco, and Jordan Hammersley London for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Burroughs101 in the UK, who writes, Great podcast for all things science fiction and fantasy. Just check out the list of some of the interviewees. Cronenberg, David Mitchell, Ernest Klein, Clive Barker, John Ronson, Kazuo Ishiguro. Need I say more? Start with the Ishiguro interview where they discuss the hot topic of SFF versus mainstream, but spend the last 20 minutes with Ishiguro interviewing the interviewer about all things SFF. Fascinating stuff. So big thanks again to Burroughs101 for that great review. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, 
visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.